0: training number four exercises and program planning for runners with Richard Blaygrove welcome to the run smarter podcast the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier stronger and smarter runner my name is Brody Sharp I am the guy to reach out to when you finally decided enough is enough with your persistent running injuries I'm a physiotherapist the owner of the Breakthrough Running Clinic and your podcast host. I'm excited to bring you today's lesson and to add to your ever-growing running knowledge. Let's work together to overcome your running injuries, getting you to that starting line and finishing strong. So let's take it away. Welcome back to Season 2, Strength Training for Runners. We're continuing our season, Uh, it's encouraging to see the downloads are starting to slowly creep up over the past week, couple of days, I'm also getting a lot of shout outs on Instagram about the podcast and people are wanting to share it which is really really cool and I'm also getting some really nice feedback through direct messages which is really nice, I have a huge passion for doing these and when I do record them, um, I'm very excited, I record multiple episodes at once and don't seem to get tired of it even just last night i did this interview that you'll hear this episode and woke up the next morning ready to edit and ready to publish it just because i'm excited to share it with the world i'm excited to share it with you because it's really really important stuff i have a big passion for educating people and this podcast is serving me in many ways so i'm glad that's resonated with you and providing the feedback and the shout outs is is really nice it's really encouraging I'm also seeing that the the downloads are levelling out, so earlier episodes are getting about the same amount of downloads throughout the whole season as the latest episodes, which means you guys are appreciating the importance of listening to all of them. If you're listening to this episode or the last couple of episodes when they've first been released, it means that you're a part of this new wave of smarter runners and when this podcast becomes big, which it's going to be, you can have some pride in knowing that you have been one of the early adopters. This episode, we're setting a new milestone for the podcast, and we have our first guest. His name is Rich Blagrove, and he is the author of The Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Runners, um, a book that I've had for about a year and a half now. I've adopted a lot of his principles into my work as a physio and what I've referenced several times throughout this season already. So about 90% of the topics and the tips that I give you when it comes to strength training for runners has come from Rich himself. Therefore, it was an honor to have him on. Rich is a lecturer in physiology. He has a lot of qualifications in strength and conditioning. He's a tutor and assessor. He did say that he spent a lot of time coaching runners which he'll discuss in a second he's not doing much anymore but he has worked with the younger population with running and running injuries and his depth in the latest evidence and the research around running strength and conditioning is just through the roof and so I was super excited to have him on we go through some practical tips for you to apply some strength exercises for you to do even if you don't have a gym membership how to structure it throughout your week, what dosages are most appropriate, mixed in with a lot of tips here and there throughout the interview. Really excited to bring you this one. I think we'll have one more episode for season two after this, and then we'll move on to the next. I don't want to give away too much because one, things might change and it might not come to fruition, and two, I just like the element of surprise. So without further ado, let's take it away with Rich Blaygrove.
1: So my name's uh, Rich Blagrove. So at the moment, I'm a lecturer in physiology at Loughborough University. And I also direct the Masters in Strength and Conditioning program that we, uh, that we run there as well. Um, so at, at the moment, and certainly for the last few years, actually, my, uh, my role with runners has largely been around research. And so my PhD looked into the effects of strength training um, in the post-pubertal adolescent age group with runners. Um, And at the moment, I've I've moved on to a number of different projects. So um, we're doing some work on um, some of the structural and mechanical determinants of running economy at the moment, um, and also looking at the effects of low energy availability in runners and specifically how that impacts bone health. Um, I've moved a little bit away from coaching runners in the last few years just to focus a little bit more on on my research. Um, But before I started at Loughborough, I was uh, based down in London at a university called St. Mary's. And uh, for about 10 years there, I worked um, more in a strength and conditioning coaching capacity with runners from kind of recreational level right the way through to elite, um, including some that made Olympic finals and won medals at major international championships So uh, that was a great experience. And yeah, I wrote a book off the back of that around strength training for for endurance runners, which kind of just shares some of the practice that um, I was using with those guys.
0: Yeah, great. When you were doing that coaching and working with runners, was there a certain demographic or um, like level, uh, an elite level that you were more attracted to?
1: Um, Not really. And I think... So uh, those people based in the UK will probably know a little bit about St. Mary's University and I guess um, some of your international listeners, not so much, but St. Mary's used to be the sort of national hub centre for endurance running um, with UK Athletics Um, and it very much kind of retained its tradition and culture once that hub centre got moved to another location and so at a kind of university collegiate type level, you've got some of the best um, university runners in the UK who are based at St Mary's, um, and then ones that aren't uh, runners that aren't students. Again, you've got um, the likes of Mo Farah that live and are based around St Mary's, um, and other senior runners that um, are based in the local area. Um, plus, it's quite close to Bushy Park, which was uh, which which is the the place of the first ever park run. Um oh, cool! Running's just a, yeah. So running is just a really popular sport from sort of recreational level right the way through to yeah your Olympic gold medalists like Mo Farah. Um, but I mean the guys that I was working with were because I was um, I was a member of staff at the university were were mostly students um, plus some of the elite runners that were based there. Um, but then as I mentioned before, my my PhD research focused in on uh, the postpubertal adolescent age groups, so a kind of age. 14 through to about age 18. Um, and so in the last few years that I worked there, I was working a little bit more with that that age group plus a few recreational runners as well.
0: Okay, very nice. And how about you running yourself? Have you um, taken part in any races or do any running at the moment?
1: <laughs> great question. So hmm. uh, yeah I was I was a competitive runner right the way through uh, like my teenage years. Um, so I competed at a kind of national level ran i think one fifty two for eight hundred uh about three three fifty five for fifteen hundred and about an eight eight and a half minute three k so like I was okay, I was reasonable, and that got me a couple of medals at regional championships and so on but um i mean I had a succession of injuries around uh when I was at university actually um and ended up quitting the sport and moving into uh, into rowing which uh like bioenergetically, in terms of the energy systems, is quite similar, but the mo- movement pattern wise, it's very different. Um, but that was a great experience. But since I stopped rowing, like r- running's always been my main passion, and I really, really enjoy getting out for runs several times a week. So that's pretty much all I do now. Um, try and get out and do park runs on a Saturday, but I've not really targeted like any, like a, a half marathon or a marathon yet, and certainly nothing competitive for about 10 or so years now. And um, I kind of like it that way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, nothing too serious at the moment.
0: <laughs> cool. Um, let me bring you up to speed with uh, this season uh, well, that I have uh, with strength training. So um, yep. this is going to be like the fourth episode within the season which is dedicated to strengthening for runners and just educating the runners about the importance of strength and conditioning. Uh, so cool. we've, we've already discussed the the – injury risks around strength training and how significantly low it is. Um, And we I was was sort of educating people about the the link with um, running related injuries and strength training. There's not necessarily a lot of evidence emerging at the moment with a reduction in like running related injuries, uh, but did a whole episode on the benefits that strength and conditioning has for an endurance runner. And also, yeah. the debunking myths around uh, gaining like muscle, muscle mass in the gym, yeah, sure. and making several uh, references from your book, the strength and conditioning for endurance running, um, along with some other research that I have been doing. But the um, the runners have they're well informed now of the why. So now I want to talk about the how. How can runners yes. implement things?
1: yeah sure and so yeah.
0: um i wanted to come up with a scenario and mm. i've got a recreational runner who's building up for a half marathon um yeah hasn't done any strengthening before and has realized the benefits and the performance benefits of strength and conditioning um yeah so where can we start let's just say um if you have such a runner, uh, what information would you like to know? What details would you like to know about the runner before implementing some sort of strength and conditioning?
1: Yeah, that's a really great, great question. And I always like scenarios because I think when it comes to actual training prescription and how we integrate strength and conditioning, it is always very much sort of, it depends. And, uh, one size doesn't fit all, unfortunately. Otherwise, we'd all mm. been, be doing the same program. <laughs> so, so yeah, when, when I first meet a runner, um, so I've, I first find out about what their goals are for their sport. So this, mm. this person's gearing up for a half marathon, so what sort of time they're looking to hit, uh, whether they've done any half marathons before. Um, and then I'd, I always ask about any running-related injuries they've had. So have they had any niggles quite recently? Have they picked up any more kind of serious injuries which have kept them out of the sport for a prolonged period of time? Um, And as part of that, I'll ask if they can provide any sort of physiotherapy reports or if they've worked with other practitioners as part of a sort of sports science support team, like they might have a physiology report, for example, or a nutrition profile. Um, I'll ask for some details around that because that's that's always quite helpful in uh, looking at the bigger picture. Um, and then in terms of their strength and conditioning, so you, you mentioned this in this scenario, they haven't done any, but I might ask them like what kind of, I'd sort of frame it slightly differently and say, what non-running type activities do you do at the moment? And what have you done in the past? Uh, cause some of them might say, Oh, I, I stretch every evening. I do 10 or 15 minutes after every run. Um, I often find a lot of runners, are uh, big fans of kind of core stability type training mm. and we'll be doing that several times a week. Um, and some of them might be doing strength and conditioning without even realising it. So they might be doing some sort of running drills before maybe an interval session. Um, and I would kind of, I would kind of frame that as as low intensity plyometrics, which is a which is an important type of strength training. Whereas they just a runner would just see it as as, as kind of part of their warm up. Um, so I try and get as much detail as I could about any kind of strength and conditioning work that they were currently carrying out. Um, and then I would try and get an idea of how, like, what the kind of expectations are around strength and conditioning. So, are they doing it because they're rehabbing an injury? Are they doing it because they want to offset the risk of getting an injury, um, or are they mainly just bothered about trying to improve improve their performance? Um, and then more specifically, like, how they see it fitting into their training week. So as part of that, if they're a, if they're giving up for this half marathon and they've got a full-time job, um, a busy lifestyle, they might have a family, they might have a busy social life. Um, like These sorts of things need to factor into the decisions that you make about where you place strength and conditioning within the training week. And then I guess really importantly, what um, facilities and equipment they've got access to. Because there's no point in me sketching out a program that involves um, squat racks and Olympic weightlifting platforms. If, um, if the runner turns around and says, well, I'm going to be doing this in my living room at home. Um, like it's just unrealistic. So I'd, I kind of need to know what the constraints are in terms of the environments that they, they want to be doing strength and conditioning in.
0: Cool. All right. So um, just breaking down any past injuries, which is very key if we know anything from yep. like, what's your risk of injury moving forward? It's if how many injuries you've had in the past, uh, what they have access to, what their aim is, what their goals are. And if you are discussing this with a runner, are there any common objections you have that you come across when you're discussing this sort of dialogue with a runner?
1: I think, yeah, I think it depends. If a runner is um, currently in pain, so if, if, um, if they're on the sidelines with injury and th- they're uh, having to miss training days, then I would try and direct them towards a physiotherapist initially just to try and get to what the root cause of the problem is and uh, and to get some treatment. And then I'll try and work with that physiotherapist to try and put together some sort of rehabilitation program. Um, I think that's the only scenario I can think of where, yeah, I, I might kind of not program for them initially or not take them into a gym setting and, and get going with some testing. Um, and I might refer them on to, to somebody else. Um, I think the only other scenarios that I've faced before, so. I mentioned some of my research at the moment is, is looking at low energy availability. Mm-hmm. So, this kind of, um, I'm sure most of your listeners would have heard of like the female athlete triad, and it's kind of been reframed as, as the relative energy deficiency in sports syndrome now. Like it has quite a high prevalence with um, competitive distance runners, especially and particularly females. Um, and so, if I'm sort of picking up signs that, that maybe had a succession of of bone-related injuries, so stress responses, stress fractures, and I'm, I might be thinking, okay, they're probably not fueling well enough or they're not getting the right type of fuel in. Again, I might refer them on to a nutritionist or try and advise them to get some, um, some help from a nutrition expert before I start loading them up with loads of, uh, loads of strength training, which, which might do more harm than good in the short term. Mm. Um, so I think those are the two scenarios where, yeah, I might kind of stop at that, that point of, of the screening and say, okay, we need to seek help from, from colleagues
0: here. Yeah. It, I, I actually did a blog. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. A couple of weeks ago regarding the Reds and um, what, okay. you, what was previously the you know female triad. So if anyone yep. is a bit uh, confused about that, they can just follow that on social media and I think it's outside the scope of today's podcast. Uh, yes. I will do yeah. it. Uh, an episode down the track regarding that, but um, back to this scenario. So uh, yeah. let's just say if you've discussed the goals with them and if they're training for this half marathon and they're not necessarily wanting to um, push for a certain time, but they just want to finish um, uh, like within their capabilities and they just want to get it done. I think that's a common um, goal yeah. for most people when they first do a half marathon, a marathon, just, you know, maybe run the whole way. Um, yes. Realistically, how much time are they committing or how much would you like them to commit in terms of time and frequency within the week?
1: Yes. Yeah, and that's another great question. And I guess best way to answer this is to take your scenario and to add, add a couple more scenarios in Go for it. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, if, if we're sort of going purely off what the scientific evidence says, we need, we need a minimum of two strength sessions per week. And so that's usually what I would try and aim for. And, and again, I guess through my experience, um, two sessions a week is, is usually enough. How that's then kind of organized within the week is, is again a little bit more tricky and is, is quite individual. And so if, um, if this runner, if, if I said, okay, could you, could you map out your training week for me? Describe what you do on a day-to-day basis. If they're running every single day of the week because um, they've sort of built up to that kind of level and they, they enjoy it enough, so they're getting out six, seven days a week, I would actually say it's safe and based again on, on the research, um, effective to drop one or two of those runs to try and accommodate some strength training. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if they can reduce that down to maybe five runs a week in order to get some some strength and conditioning sessions exclusively into um, a couple of days then um, that that will usually be really effective Um, and that kind of extra rest will actually help their running it kind of seems counterintuitive that you almost do less in order to gain more Um, but that extra rest should help their harder sessions a little bit And because, as you say, we know that strength training helps reduce injury risk and improves performance. um, Like overall, that should lead to a more effective, well-rounded training program. Um, I guess another slightly different scenario. So quite often what I face present um, um, that option to runners is, is they're not very willing to do that. So particularly if we've got somebody that's running maybe three or four days a week, Um, or at a a more elite level, they don't want to drop runs out of their training program, Um, we need to look to try and find, okay, where can we add the strength training to the program, which isn't going to compromise the running sessions too much. And so, um, if possible, I would try and add add the the strength training sessions um, separate from the running sessions with around about six hours recovery or more, if possible, and so that's kind of running in the morning and then trying to do a strength training session in the evening, if possible. Um, quite a lot of runners like to do their strength training on an easier running day. So it doesn't kind of interfere with with harder, um, like tempo type running sessions or interval type running sessions, which is completely fine. Um, and other runners prefer to do it on their harder days. So they kind of adopt what I would term a sort of polarized approach to the week where you have very hard days. Which include your harder running and your strength training sessions, and then very easy days, which are essentially just a slow, easy recovery run, um, in order to get over the, the harder day's work. Um, and I guess the third approach, and this is something that I've I've used with uh, several recreational runners quite successfully, is to actually not treat strength training as two individual sessions through the week, but split it up into smaller training units. And so work for about 20 or 30 minutes every single day of the week, instead of two, like one hour sessions, for example. And so if we split it up like that, it suddenly becomes a little bit more manageable. And so for those runners that can't train twice a day and do a run and strength training, they just have to do their run, have a little recovery, and then go and do some form of of strength training um, every single day of the week.
0: Mm -hmm. If we go back to that, um, the other scenario you're talking about when we're doing um, two or three strength training sessions and you're suggesting an idea of uh, doing a run and a strength session within the same day, um, you would recommend doing the strength sessions later in the day um, after a run or does it matter if they swap and do the strength training in the morning, wait six hours and then do a run later on that day? I think
1: for somebody that's just starting out strength training, it, it really doesn't matter. like the most important thing is that runners are engaging with it and so like if it's dictated by their lifestyle that it's better that they go to the gym in the morning and they prefer to run in the evening, <clears throat> I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. Um, in more well-trained athletes, so athletes that have perhaps been doing strength training for years and years, we do probably need to be a little bit more scientific about it. Um, but still if the main goal is to get fitter for running, I would still argue that it's probably better to do a run first in the day and then the strength training session later in the day, particularly if that run is is got to be of a relatively high quality.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And for those who decide to do a strength or combine their strength training on an easy day compared to combine their strength on a hard running day, uh, is that just a trial and error um, thing for someone to try for, as a runner?
1: Yeah, I think so. And again, this, the, the research evidence around this is is pretty weak. So we haven't got any kind of consensus um, with what the, uh, the scientific evidence is, is telling us. Um, and I think it sort of makes logical sense that if you've got two or three really hard sessions within the week, so some sort of hill sprint, some sort of interval training session, some kind of race pace type tempo effort, Then doing anything else on that day, which is going to make you tired, um, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and so if people prefer to do it on an easier day, like that's completely fine. Um, so they do their easy run and then the priority on that day is to do the strength work. Um, I've, I've, I then kind of played around a little bit. And this was more with, with the elite athletes that I was working with, who obviously don't, um, they only have part-time jobs or they don't work. So they've got much more time to recover and to choose when they're, they're going to do their sessions uh, within the day. So we played around, like you said, through, through trial and error, more or less, with trying to do the, um, the strength work a few hours after their, um, their hard running session. And for, um, for those runners, it seemed to work quite well. And so they're able to recover quite quickly from their hard running session in the morning, go to the gym, do their strength work, and quite often they would do another run in the evening. And then they adopted that type of polarized design through um, the whole training year. And so it was kind of, it is sort of trial and error. And as I said, I think with recreational runners, it ends up being dictated a little bit by lifestyle, by access to uh, facilities and so on. And so when you take those sorts of things into account, it ends up being a kind of individual decision based around what's, what's best for that runner.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. And like you said before, they're the, the issues and the um, availability things that you're identifying when you very first start working with them. They're the questions you ask, what's your availability, like what access do you have? What equipment do you have? Um, so you're laying that groundwork and you've got those ideas in your mind from day one. So, um, it's all to come, coming together quite nicely. And I, I like how we have this um, scenario of this half marathoner, but we're also deviating a little bit from different types of runners. So we're, we're covering a lot, which I like. If we go back to this half marathoner and uh, you say, okay, two sessions a week and let's just say they don't have a lot of access to a gym, um, they have a few weights at home. Uh, do you have any rough guidelines around reps and sets for them to do because for those who aren't much of a gym goer you can go quite heavy and say work five sets of three or you can go quite light and do three sets of 15 20 25 so is there any guidelines around where they should start if they haven't had much experience
1: yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, in a home-based environment, it's obviously quite difficult to to add any load unless unless we're being quite creative and uh, innovative with with uh, what we've got around the house. So, like filling up rucksacks and so on and so forth. So, um, like doing exercises with body weight on two legs is often a good place to start for runners, but it will become easy quite quickly. And so, for example, if we have somebody doing a glute bridge or um, a double leg squat oh, that's probably fine for the first few weeks, but it will become, it'll become fairly easy. And so if, they, if people do have light dumbbells at home or they can put a rucksack on their back, then that might add a little bit of load. But usually the strategy that I would use for people that haven't got access to a gym is to try and work on one leg as much as possible. Because obviously when we're working on one leg, we've got to move, um, we've got to move our entire body weight just with, uh, with half the muscle mass as, as we do um, when we're doing two-legged work. And so doing things like single leg squats, single leg glute bridge, split squats, um, and different, other lift, different lunge patterns um, will usually be enough loading for somebody that's not done any strength work before to, uh, to drive um, a meaningful adaptation. Um, and in terms of repetition range, so on those body weight type exercises, I think people will be able to manage somewhere around about a dozen or so repetitions initially. Um, and I think once once you get to a point that that 's starting to feel quite easy, you do need to start thinking about adding load rather than just going up in repetitions um, and so as I say, one way to add load is to work on one leg um, and yeah to work back up towards twelve repetitions and then when I think when runners get to that point, yeah we then need to start thinking about okay, how can we try and drive a little bit more strength adaptation um, with what we've got available to us, which is, uh, which starts to get tricky.
0: Absolutely. Um, In those initial stages, when you're doing those uh, dozen rep ranges, if they have access to a TheraBand, anything that they can start with, uh, if they have access to that?
1: Yeah, sure. So yeah, elastic elastic resistance is really useful. So mini bands, TheraBands, and I mean the, the, the thicker resistance bands, which, um, practitioners often call like monster bands, um, don't actually cost too much money. So I think like certainly in the UK, you can get like a decent resistance band for around about 18 or 20 pounds, um, which isn't too much. And so if you were to wrap that around your shoulders and stand on it and do some sort of exercise against that resistance, that's, um, that's certainly helpful. And that's one way to, to add a little bit more load. Um, and I've used door frames and things like that before. So if you press up against the door frame and try and do something like a calf raise, for example, um, it's a kind of static type contraction. Um, but that's usually again, enough to, to start overloading individual muscles quite nicely.
0: Yeah. No, never thought of that before. It's a, it's a handy <laughs> tip. Like you said, you need to get creative.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, like I've, I've seen people, like, like I mentioned before, load up rucksacks with heavy books and, and, and things like this. And we, we've got to think about safe, safety a little bit and the way it sort of pulls you out of position. But, um, again, it's, it's better than nothing and probably better than paying a gym membership for a lot of people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a good tip that you were saying if, you, if these exercises, like bridges, lunges, squats, calf raises, like all those variations – Once they start getting too easy, um, trying to avoid uh, increasing the reps from 15 to 20, 25 and start increasing the load. So um, I'm kind of reading between the lines and saying that a gym membership would be more effective or if you do have access to weights, that would be more effective to start applying load. And once they start progressing and transitioning into that phase, uh, are you recommending similar Movements, so we're still keeping with the squats, the calf raises, the lunges, but just applying more load.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely, and yeah, as you're alluding to there, it it does. It gets to a point fairly quickly that it's it's difficult to apply more load. So, using some free weights and uh yeah, barbells, dumbbells, and so on, it like sort of becomes necessary. And I'm by by no means trying to sell gym memberships here, but. Uh, it's it becomes difficult once we get to yeah that kind of 12 repetition 12 repetitions and we're just using body weight and we're not really getting much from it that it's better to uh, to add loads and yeah to answer your questions about exercises so typically i will always have runners doing one or two bilateral exercises on two legs so something like a romanian deadlift and a back squat and um And then a couple of single leg exercises. So I've really just got two sort of main what I call movement streams. So stepping patterns and lunging patterns. So the most simple form of a stepping pattern is just like a sort of dead leg step up or stepping up onto a low box with um, hopefully some sort of load on your back. And the most simple lunge pattern is just a split squat. So if you take an exaggerated step forward, so your back heel raises off the ground and you can kind of feel your weight pushing through the front heel. It's just lowering your hips down towards the ground and then popping back up to uh, to the start position. Um, and so, yeah, th- those four exercises form a kind of quite nice, well-rounded lower limb resistance training program.
0: Yeah, it sounds nice. I think the strengthening side of things can be quite simplified and it can be overcomplicated. i think there's a, a balance between the two people like to get quite inventive and creative and come up with these weird whack exercises but it can be just as basic as what you're describing um if they're starting out or well if they're becoming more experienced um should we if you're imp- if you're taking on more and more load should you stay around the same rep range if we're wanting to see those benefits through that half marathon um, and still continue with that half dozen but just continue applying heavier and heavier weights
1: um yeah so i I would lower the repetition range to to try and drive more sort of pure strength adaptation so the example that we started off with in a home-based environment i think moving up to around about a dozen repetitions is fine and people will get stronger doing that. Typically, if a runner's starting in a weights environment or I'm working with them in, in, in a gym setting right from the start, I'll typically not go much over eight, maybe ten repetitions. But then as they get more experienced, I'm looking to increase the load and actually bring the repetitions down a bit. And I don't mean we go really, really heavy like a, a powerlifter might do, um, but with some, with some more well-trained runners – I would go as low as about three repetitions. So I'd be working around about three to six repetitions as they've uh, accumulated um, a number of months experience. And then when they go back to the start of a training cycle again, I might periodize it. So they go back up in terms of their repetition range, so back up to around about eight to ten repetitions. And then they're working back down again, getting heavier and heavier um as, as the training progresses. So it's as much about varying um reps and sets and loads as it is about um like actually sort of yeah like what what the actual repetition range we're looking to work to.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important just to include at this stage, if someone were to uh start applying load, making sure that they're reaching the adequate range for the exercise and doing the technique correct, I think it's um, Obvious to say, but should probably be included. (laughs) Um, Do you focus a lot on technique initially with the runners that you used to work with?
1: Yeah, and that's that's exactly one of the reasons why I'd start with a slightly higher repetition range with novices. Because typically, um, they wouldn't be doing the exercise in the first place if they weren't moving effectively just with body weight. But the second that we start adding loads in the form of barbells or dumbbells, they need to be able to hold, hold their form well. Um, and so if we're just working three repetitions, they don't really get the opportunity to acquire the skills because um, they haven't done very many like, repetitions of practice. And so working more up at around eight to ten repetitions gives us the opportunity to practice technique, make sure it's, it's fairly strict, um, but also still acquire strength. And so that's, that's, that kind of middle ground is, uh, is, is one of the rationales for, uh, for why I would, I would pick that. But certainly, as you say, um, and probably as, as I should have mentioned when we we're talking about screening right at the start, so after I've done a sort of verbal screening with an athlete, the next, next stage before we start doing any sort of resistance training is actually to put them through a series of assessments. So that can be some, some strength assessments, but also some movement-based assessments. And so if I have a runner that that can't perform, um, just can't control their body weight very well. And so they're losing, uh, losing the posture. They're losing maybe ankle knee hip alignment, like their weight distribution across their foot isn't quite right. These are the sorts of things we'd work on initially just with body weight until they could control the movement well and perform exercises through, uh, through range of movement with good form. And then we would look to start adding some load after that. And, uh, the second it starts breaking down, as you said, it would uh, would take a step back and regress the exercise, and uh, and try and tidy up the technique a little bit.
0: Yeah, and you do have a chapter in your book which illustrates that really well. All those breaking down those movements and looking for any faults or like just a check box kind of list. Okay, yes. is this? Yeah. Are they achieving this? 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 Okay, tick, tick, tick. It's all okay. I think I like to add when I'm working with my runners as well. If they are doing a certain exercise at if it's a new exercise and they're doing a, a high rep range, um, just asking where they feel the fatigue as well and yes, uh, yes. knowing if they start feeling in the right areas, okay, that's probably a good chance to progress, but if they're feeling their back or somewhere in their shoulders and they're not really um, meeting that that fatigue factor, it's probably worth either like modifying the exercise or finding uh, slight variations and technique variations so that they can start activating the right muscles. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, 100%. And yeah, it's often one of the, um, uh, my, my criteria when I'm going through those assessments. Um, I think something like a glute bridge is a really good example of that. So an exercise, you'd expect them to be feeling it fatigue or at least working and activating within their gluteal muscles. But if they're feeling a lot of kind of tightness and uh, overactivity in their lower back, then um, yeah, that's then a sort of little bit of a cause for concern um, and something you might look to address or keep that exercise in the program for a period of time um, until they can feel it a little bit more through the muscles that should be working.
0: Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Let let's say someone, a diehard runner, comes to you and says, "Okay, Rich, I'll follow your strengthening program. Um, I'll do it twice a week, and I'll continue running my usual running program. How long until I can start seeing benefits with my running? What would you say?"
1: Yeah, it's a uh, it's a good question. Like you, you, sometimes it's probably a bit of a placebo, but. We sometimes have runners that do a single session and the following day yeah they feel a little bit stiff a little bit sore but then the day after that they have a absolutely blinding session so they have one of the best sessions they've ever had and they're like oh that strength session you did with me it worked so well I just felt amazing when I was running um which is always nice because you get that little bit of buy-in that you need to um for them to uh to, to keep up the program um yeah it's always it's I guess it's sometimes tricky to see like a real tangible benefit i mean the main thing that runners are concerned about is is the time that they uh that, that they get on it on a given distance or like you say just getting around an event and so if they achieve that and and they hit their target, then that's going to be a product of both the running training that they've done and any other non running based training um and it's quite difficult to obviously separate those. Um, I mean, obviously, what we can we can look at is is to the research literature, which typically shows that after a period of two or three months, a couple of strength training sessions a week, we will usually see running economy improve. So, running economy is how much oxygen or energy that we're using at, um, at sub maximal running speeds. So, we usually see running economy improve by somewhere something around four to five percent. And it's difficult for a runner to kind of like tangibly sort of feel that because you don't kind of feel how much sort of oxygen you're using. You just end up kind of speeding up a little bit. Um, Mm. And so, yeah, I think runners sometimes sort of describe it as a sensation of, oh, I felt really strong. I almost had like a second wind in the the latter stages of a race. Um, And I think that's actually sort of how this changing running economy probably manifests itself. in a a kind of mechanistic sense Um, so I guess yeah to answer your question you typically see that sort of change after a period of two to three months Um, and so yeah I think if you've got your half marathon runner building up as long as they've got three months before that event that they can get in this decent block of strength training they, they should be able to see a benefit
0: great and if someone wants to progress to any plyometric exercises do you have any good examples that you like to use
1: yeah, I'm really pleased you brought up Plyometrics because, I mean, it, it often seems to me, and this is listening to other podcasts and speaking to other strength and condition coaches that work with runners, that Plyometrics almost seems to be this sort of training activity that people think is, is like reserved for advanced level athletes and elite level athletes, which it's, um, it's, not, it's not at all. Um, and I mean, if we just sort of think about what Plyometrics is, first of all, it's essentially jumping, hopping, skipping type activities that are trying to improve how much elastic energy that we're able to store in our tendons. And if you think about skipping, for example, like it's very, very similar to running. And so run, running is a plyometric activity. And so we only need to kind of nudge the intensity of, of running very slightly in terms of a plyometric activity to get an, an actual benefit. And so those sort of low intensity plyometrics can be used with novices um, and people that haven't done very much strength training before. And so we, we've sort of spent quite a long time talking about resistance training with with body weight and, uh, and with free weights. But alongside that resistance training, I would always have some form of plyometric training in there. And I guess the beauty of plyometric training as well is it doesn't really require any equipment. And so people can do a series of skips, or a series of jumps for height with, with a short ground contact time um, or a series of little hops in a row and they don't need any sort of equipment or any fancy facility and so that can be done at home as well and the transfer you'll get with that type of work will be a little bit quicker as well than resistance training just because it's that little bit more specific The um, sort of biomechanics are very similar to the running action yeah. and so I would, I would always start runners off with low-level skipping, some little jumping exercises, and uh, maybe some mini hops. And then gradually, again, similar to resistance training, raise the intensity over time. So get people jumping on and off boxes eventually, going over little hurdles and then bigger hurdles. And then I guess ultimately we want people um, doing hops for distance, so maybe six to eight hops where they're trying to hop as far as they possibly can. And I guess the ultimate plyometric that I use with um, some of my elite runners is is like speed bounding. So bounding for speed where they're trying to cover as much distance as they possibly can with each step. Um, and I've even tried doing a little bit of that uphill and up up small slopes, which is um, really quite a potent stimulus.
0: Yeah, it requires a lot of like neuromuscular control as well, like a good firepower.
1: It does, and that's, that's why I certainly wouldn't use it with people that of years years before we get to that, that kind of point. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't be recommending that uh, if people haven't done it before, they dive straight in and, and go bounding up a steep hill.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very wise. Um, I have a theory that I want to talk to you about uh, as we just wrap up this interview because there's piles of evidence that uh, looks at the benefits of strength training for increasing endurance running performance Um, but it's uh, what Tom Goom sort of calls skimpy when it comes to weighing up the evidence to running related injuries and will it reduce your risk of injuries the the evidence isn't as backed up and if they have if you have a look at a runner or like a bunch of runners and you say okay you guys are weak runners you guys are strong runners um, continue with your normal running miles and uh, mileage, they get injured the same rate, and mm. um, my theory being, I don't know if someone's already come up with this. You can let me know, but um, you never see a sport where there's like uh, there's no ceiling on it. So when when it comes to a runner, like a recreational runner, they're always striving for more and more and more. And we know that injuries are load dependent. You've exceeded your load yes. capacity. Yes. We all know that. Yes. But But um, for a recreational runner who does a half marathon, they go straight into, okay, let me do a marathon. And <laughs> you never have, I'll say, I'll say this on a, um, a couple of other episodes, you never have a basketballer who gets really good at basketball and says, okay, let me try doing three games of basketball at once now. You, it doesn't happen. There's like a capped ceiling when it comes to some sporting events and you never really see um, such an open-ended like sport yeah. like running. And so people not only have this um, ability to just to do more and more and more, but they want to go faster and faster and they always see themselves wanting to be two steps ahead of where they are now. So they're always wanting to run faster and run further and doesn't matter on strength. that It's irrelevant of strength. You always want to better yourself. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think, yeah, I've heard others sort of... Um, yeah, articulate that kind of theory before in in slightly different ways, but um yeah, I th- I think what it sort of boils down to, or what um how I think I've just in- interpreted what you've said, is that there's there's quite a lot of different ways that a runner can overload, like quite a lot of different variables, and it's quite easy for a runner to overload too quickly, if mm. um, so I sort of understood that right, and so. I guess as a, as a runner's accumulating more fitness, it's very easy to sort of nudge up intensity on easy runs and sessions, um, which is still obviously overload. Um, yeah, runners are always sort of looking at their watch and chasing numbers in terms of their their weekly running volumes. And again, it's quite easy for people to progress too quickly doing that. And yeah, people have always got long-term goals generally in running rather than, as you were saying, in game sports where there's competitions um every single week and so it's quite easy to set yourself an overly ambitious goal in three six months time to run a distance that you might never have run before um so it's 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 quite tempting for people to push a little bit too hard too soon um so yeah I've, i've understood that sort of correctly
0: absolutely yeah and it's sort of like articulating from different um different ways i guess the the ability just to change so many variables because it's not only just within yeah. one running session it's over the course of one week two weeks it, like those different variables of speed um terrain duration distance th- they all compile together and lead to exactly. injuries. Exactly.
1: and when you yeah so when you you put all of those things into the mix, plus you put in individuals' genetics, um, individuals' own little dysfunctions in terms of the way that, that they move and joint limitations and anthropometrics and so on and so forth, plus all the lifestyle things as well, which, which contribute stress, like overall stress to the system. Like running-related injury is incredibly complex. Um, we're probably only scraping the surface with, with, the two, with the things that we've mentioned between us there. And so when you try and when you try and answer a simple question around does strength training prevent overuse injury, it's actually incredibly difficult to try and answer that question with, with a research study, mm. um, which, which is why I think there isn't really the sort of prospective evidence, um, which, which would indicate that it does. Um, it ends up being a more sort of theoretical argument, which, which I think is still fine, um, Plus, we've got some evidence from correlation literature. So, like, we know that things like Achilles tendinopathies, um, iliotibial band syndrome, patellofemoral pain to some extent are highly correlated with gluteal strength, for example. So, it's not a cause effect thing. We, like, we don't know for a fact that if we make our glutes stronger, we're going to offset the risk of those injuries. But that would sort of make intuitive sense that to get stronger glutes, we might, we might lower the risk. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, I I, th- I think overall it's uh, it's never going to do a runner any harm as long as we're programming it in the right sort of way. Yeah. Um. And it's, yeah. And I think anecdotally, with the number of examples we've got between us, um, it certainly seems to to add a lot of value.
0: Yeah. And um, I was listening to um, Mike James, who was um speaking at the run chat live the other day. Yes. Um, oh, I was just yeah. li- listening to it the other day. Um, and he just finished with like, when it comes to strength training, why wouldn't you give me like a sound reason why you wouldn't implement strengthening into your program. And if you can come up with a sound reason and go for it, but, um, there's all, all the gurus out there, uh, knowing all the evidence. And like you said, it just makes sense for you to increase your load capacity through the tissues and everything to, um, to help running so why wouldn't you Um, we're going to wrap up here Rich. Uh, this was a fantastic interview it went the exact way I planned to have uh, like a lot of practical examples just breaking it down breaking down the numbers and some examples of exercises congratulations on your book strength and conditioning for endurance running Um, I've referenced it several times within this season and uh, for those who are interested in getting the book there's debunking myths there's exercise examples assessments drills Um, planning out your like periodization. There's some really nice case studies in there as well. And it's just a load of information. So um, let's finish with if someone wants to get the book, where can they get it? And if someone wants to uh, have a chat with you or reach out, is there any social media um, platforms that they can follow?
1: Yeah. So uh, I guess the easiest place to get the book is on Amazon. Um, I think that's where it's cheapest as well. So um, good to know. (laughs) And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I think, uh, yeah, people, people share a lot of wisdom on Twitter and there's some really great discussions. So my hashtag is at rich and then underscore blagrove. spot B L A G R O V E. Um, and yeah, people can, can find me there.
0: Great. Awesome. Um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the research that you do, sharing your wisdom, taking the time to actually come on and do this interview. Um, we look forward to you bringing out whatever you're working on the moment and whatever you so happen to bring out in the future. I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and taking the time.
1: Great. Thanks for the invite Brody. And yeah, I'll, uh, I'll keep you updated.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the running smarter podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content will have on your future running. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and keep listening. If you want to learn quicker, jump into the Facebook group titled Become a Smarter Runner. If you want tailored education and physio rehab, you can personally work with me at breakthroughrunning.physio. Thank you so much once again. And remember, knowledge is power.